1: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now, here's your host, Cheryl Esposito.
2: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we have a special guest who is returning for a second show with us Kim Weichel, who is the co founder and co director of the Institute for Peacebuilding. She's the co-author of Healing the Heart of the World, Harnessing the Power of Intention to Change Your Life and Your Planet, and she's co-founder of Our Media Voice, Campaign for Accountability. I can't wait to hear more about that. Kim, welcome. Thank you, Cheryl.
3: Thank you so much for having me back on your show. I really enjoyed it the last time.
2: It was great having you, and we're excited to have you back now because things have become pretty exciting for you in the last couple of years, and we're going to hear all about it as you have even moved across the country. That's right. That's right. So, so Kim, let's... Start with a little bit and catch people up on um, some of the work you've done in your lifetime. You know, you are so focused on peace building, and that is really work of the heart for you. And as I have had the experience to get to know you and to see you in action, your commitment to a life of peace for everyone not just in terms of the bigger way of seeing peace which many people do wars and strife between countries etc but even peace in an individual in everyday life you take it down to that level talk to us a little bit about what got you interested in that way back when
3: Great question, Cheryl. Thank you so much for that. Yes, it has been a a core theme and passion of my life. Um, I think this really began in South Africa, where my husband and I lived for five years during the apartheid era. So this was 1975 to 1980. And of course, the extraordinarily awful regime that apartheid was and the oppression that it created for the vast majority of the population was just unacceptable, and by being there, I knew that I needed to be engaged at whatever level I could to promote change and work towards a more open, healthy society. And I think there's indeed a role for people within the country and people outside of the country. Certainly, by, by me, being there did not in any way mean that I condoned apartheid, in fact, quite the opposite. And so I was involved, uh, directed several projects, worked extensively with, uh, with the Institute for Race Relations to to, um, in in a variety of ways, build the kind of culture that would be more open to be integrated and healthy and sustainable. So we both worked within with, with employers to open up facilities. Uh, we worked with consulates and with the business community to get information out about South Africa. Um, I was, in many ways, a, a real activist. Uh, I was trying to do the research that was necessary as well to document the wages and living conditions of African people, because so much of that was not known outside of the country, to encourage pressure to be put on the government of South Africa to promote change. And then I worked extensively in a very large squatter community on the outskirts of Cape Town, and I think working there just gave me such extraordinary insight, working with women who were on the forefront of change, and eventually writing a book about South Africa and the changes within that led to the extraordinary transformation that that country went through with no bloodshed leading to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission focusing on forgiveness as a powerful principle and and a model for the world and how change is possible. So that was very much an instrumental part of my background. Um, A couple of other trends that that also were very important to me in my background. Uh, After leaving South Africa, actually, I have to say, it was very hard to do that when I was so integrally involved in that country. But eventually, after five years, my husband and I decided it was time to leave. And uh, we returned to the San Francisco area eventually, and um, I got very involved with the citizen diplomacy movement with the former Soviet Union. Again, deeply concerned about the Cold War, the uh the tension that was building the misunderstandings that were in our media and so i went there i went there in 1986 was my first trip And was very involved in in anything I could do as a citizen to encourage more honest communication, more real education about the truth as I saw it in the former Soviet Union, what people really wanted, and to try and bridge as a citizen diplomat. And then led trips there, and eventually ended up directing management training programs in in Russia. Um, And I really have lived my life with the motto of the citizen diplomacy movement. which is when the citizens lead, the leaders will eventually follow. Mm-hmm. And that's been a very empowering motto that's just carried forward in my life, that it is about each one of us taking the kinds of changes and not just having the vision but following through with the action to promote the kind of changes that we want to see. So I've, there have been many other trends, but I'll just those were two that were powerful in my background.
2: So it makes me wonder, um, As a child growing up, was there something specific that was instilled in you through your parents or through school that you somehow came to understand the importance of the individual in the world?
3: Well, I would say my mother uh, was a professional pianist and artist. And in those days when women didn't often work and she was – doing what she loved to do and she was passionate she was so good at it and i so admired her and it just gave me such a great role model that you do what you love to do you do what you're passionate about doing and yes You can do it. Even in an era when it was perhaps more difficult for her to do so, she did follow her dream, and she did it remarkably well. And I think that was a a wonderful role model, and I sort of dedicate, because my, my mother sadly died many years ago, I dedicate a lot of my work to her and what I learned from her. Uh, my father was an architect and also did what he loved, so I've had two great role models as parents, but particularly I think my mother was inspiring me in that way and always was very encouraging uh, for me to to follow my passion. And I have to say, at a very young age, I had some real big dreams, and I was encouraged to follow those dreams. Um, It was beyond my years. You know, I wrote off to Vista when I was 15, and they'd write back, sorry, you're too young, but, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I wanted to become an exchange student, and I I befriended the other exchange students at my school, and I knew that that inner core, that inner calling, shall I say, was there of wanting to be engaged internationally. You know, I studied maps, and I loved geography, and I loved learning about other cultures, and for Halloween, I'd dress up as a different person from a different culture, so it was just instilled in whatever way at such an early age that it's always been there and remains so for me.
2: Well, let's talk about that whole issue of doing what you love. I know that that is a real strong belief of yours, and it has been talked about and has been attempted to be taught, um, especially in the last 20 years or so, and yet there's still reticence on the part of some people because there's this belief that doing what you love can't be work, and you probably can't earn money doing it, and so, you know, what got you past that?
3: Um, You know, that's a great question, too, and I think that is a commonly held belief. I think what got me past it is just by living it, is that it doesn't need to be an either-or if we really develop it as a both-and. Now, I want to be also, to say it's not always easy. Uh, Some People have high ideals of what they want to earn, and, and perhaps being a social entrepreneur, which is how I really define myself, which is taking the business principles of innovation and creativity into the social sphere, isn't always about making a lot of money. Uh, but it is, al- although very much a profession, I think there are many ways that we can make our money, but I think one is to reassess how much is enough. If we have this high ideal that we need, you know, a six, seven-figure income, then perhaps being a social entrepreneur isn't always the best strategy. But I think it's, it's for me, it's about a fulfilling a soul destiny, that if I love what I do and if I continue my path, I am going to fulfill a certain part of myself that I wouldn't otherwise, and I'm going to be more of a whole person. If I can embody the issues that I stand for, um, I am going to be a happier person, and obviously it's important to earn an income, and I always have. However, my income is not what my colleagues in the business world would be, Uh, and that's okay because that is, I've reassessed how much is enough, and I think those are questions one has to ask oneself, and I think that we all have space for our vision. It depends if we, how much we really stand for it, if we If we, if we work with others, not always try to do it by ourselves, if we collaborate, if we get a group of people to support us, it's amazing how we can move forward with our passions. I mean, look at you, Cheryl, you've done this great radio show all, you know, (laughs) with, with a team and you had an idea and look how it's blossomed. And, and sometimes it surprises us, doesn't it, when these things, um,
2: you know, blossom so beautifully. Absolutely, Kim, absolutely. So, you know, you say fulfilling a soul destiny, and it makes me think about the definition of calling, um, which is a, a strong urge or an impulse to follow a particular career or a particular type of work. Some people call it mission. Some people call it passion. And, you know, help us understand how people can really touch that in themselves. It it, it seems in some ways that it would be obvious, and yet I hear people say, you know, if I knew what I was passionate about, I would do it. And what do you think gets in their way from being able to touch that in themselves? I think for me it's a,
3: a deep listening, a deep, inner listening. Uh, A calling is different from something we desire to do. It's not about figuring it out. Should I? Shouldn't I? Mm -hmm. Developing a list of the positives and negatives of any decision. That's more of a left brain, perhaps, desire. Uh, A calling comes, in my case, from deep within. Um, I've had a calling to move back to Washington, D.C. for years, uh, and I put it out. I thought, oh, it would be too difficult to move my whole family, and what do we do about our house and school? I put it aside But it kept coming back And I think that's another component of a calling If it's a calling it doesn't go away It's not a fleeting thought And then you try and figure it out If it keeps reoccurring And it's a matter in my case Or anyone's case is listening What is it you're being called to do And then to be, I think it's important To be responsible about it Moving a family across country is a big deal So how do I responsibly Set it up for success And what I did in my case, because it was such a deep calling, it wasn't a decision to make. It was something I knew I had to do to fulfill my soul's destiny. So in my case, I started speaking with my husband, who rightly was, a little interested why I'd want to do this but I thought about it before having that conversation and I also used words that I knew would would win him over. Things like this would be an adventure for the family <laughs> <Because> he <laughs> loves adventure right? And so you set it up for success but it, it was something that I knew would be a great experience. I didn't know the details I just knew so deeply that this was something that I personally needed to do. I wasn't prepared to leave my family to do it though so I need to to really ensure that everybody got what they wanted. And so lots of conversations. And, of course, he had certain sadness. We had a whole life in California, Um, a lot of friends. But I also knew we could recreate that. If if the calling, if you're following a calling – Doors are going to open for you in ways that you can't predict, so it is stepping into the unknown to some extent, but it wasn't uh, totally totally foreign to me. I had lived in Washington, D.C. before, Uh and I knew it was an exciting place, and I knew that my husband and son would enjoy it here. I just didn't know how they would enjoy it.
2: And so now you've been there for is it two years you've been there?
3: No, since last July. We've been here about nine nine, ten months oh, now.
2: Less than a year,
3: okay. And and how are you finding it? Absolutely love it. Just love it. It was it was a calling because for me and my work in international development and international peace building, which are really my fields that I've chosen for this life, um, this is where decisions are made, is in Washington, D.C. And I wanted to step up the work I was doing. I wanted to be more involved with policy. Policy is made in Washington, D.C. Um, the funding is allocated for international development work in Washington, D.C. And I knew that I was, well, I was in enjoying my work in San Francisco area, it just wasn't at the level I knew I could work and I needed to step forward, mm-hmm. you know, at my age, at my stage in my career, and I am so grateful. Doors have opened in ways that I couldn't have imagined for me personally as well as for our family. I mean, my husband so loved it that we're now buying a house here, and this was not
2: part of the plan. <laughs> so not only is he enjoying it, he's thinking he's going to stick around for a while.
3: <laughs> That's That's right. That's right. And so I've been very happy. He has opened up. He has grown. My son, who's 17, a junior in high school, goes to a fabulous public school here, and he has made friends and opened up in ways that that I couldn't have imagined. You know, it's interesting, Cheryl. He's a very uh, friendly boy, Boy Scouts and so forth. He didn't really, to be honest, have that many close friends in California. And so I knew that by coming to a new place he could – make new friends, and perhaps reinvent himself, whatever that was, and he Mm -hmm. became Mr. Popular here. He has a lot of friends. He has been able to try new things, and sometimes it's a plus, not always for kids, uh, but I I wasn't dragging him away from long term friendships, so that was a good thing, and he's really seen a different part of the world. Mm -hmm. He's met people from other parts of the world. I think it's opened up his his horizons in a way that's
2: beneficial for Well, we have more to talk about with Kim Weichel when we come right back.
1: Consulting, developing leaders worldwide.
4: Ultimately, you are the one responsible for your health and well being. You decide what's best for you. But for many of us, the struggle with health and wellness can sometimes seem hopeless. There's always something you can do to improve your personal health. Let's face it, we'll help show you solutions to health concerns from both a mainstream and alternative perspective. Your host, Dr. Marilyn Blackston, will entertain you as well as inform and educate. Let's Face It is broadcast live Thursdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. We appreciate you joining our Leading Conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: And welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Kim Weichel this morning. She is co-author of Healing the Heart of the World, Harnessing the Power of Intention to Change Your Life and Your Planet, So let's talk a bit, Kim, about some of the work, um, some of your passion. We talked this first segment about callings and passion. And this title of this book, Healing the Heart of the World, that you're part of, the co-author of, um, I'm curious about how you applied your passion to this writing.
3: (laughs) Well, my chapter in the book is about women, which is one of my long-term passions and focuses in in this lifetime. Um, I really want to support women in stepping forward and being the peace builders that they already are, but to give them not only the visibility, the credibility, but also the authority. I think women have so traditionally been oppressed as we know so many uh, difficulty still in society today while we 're making progress, we have more women presidents than ever before. Um, I really want to see women be encouraged, be supported, to be fully engaged in work in political situations, in the business world etc and it 's more for, than just women it 's about the feminine the feminine to me one of the the triangles of that I love is the intersection between spirituality, feminine and peace building. I love that that intersection and that intersection for me is about collaboration. It's about partnership. It's about interdependence. And those core values are important in all that I do. Uh, so it's its not just about women. It's that spirit of partnership. It's the longer-term thinking that women often do. It's the sharing of power rather than hoarding of power. It's the relationships that women so you know easily develop that are important in politics, that are important in business, that ability to collaborate. Um, and so the chapter I wrote in Healing the Heart of the World, and I was asked to write that chapter because I brought an international perspective that this amazing book I'm honored to be part of, it didn't have many other international perspectives, and so I was delighted to bring that. And I talked in the chapter about why women make good peace builders. And that's a really important part of my work I work I train women peace, uh, to be good peace builders, but they are so naturally in the grassroots around the world. Um, social science research indicates that women generally are more collaborative than men we, I guess Cheryl we might know this anyway <laughs> <laughs> uh, and more inclined towards consensus and compromise um, but they they're the ones in the in the grassroots they have their fingers on the pulse of what's happening in the community they're more more often at the center of the NGO, the non-governmental organization, work. Um, And they're the ones that, that often have access. And so, unfortunately, in the past, you know, the, the negotiators, the peace builders have been men. But women bring so much because of their skills, their ability to establish relationships, um, their collaborative ability, that I wanted to highlight what these are from my experiences in South Africa and Russia and other countries and why women need to be always at the peace building table.
2: So how are you seeing this manifest in Washington, D.C. today?
3: Well, one of the reasons I'm
2: here is beyond
3: <clears throat> the desire to be involved in policy, which I, which I am from outside of the administration, um, as well as... In International Development Peacebuilding, is to be able to work with extraordinary women, uh, which I'm doing here, um, both women that are in, engaged uh, internationally, doing training, doing all kinds of projects, but connecting with women at that deeper level and creating a sense of community and support, which I think is important for each of us to be able to step forward with our own work. So I'm, for example, I'm leading various training for women to be more effective peace builders in a variety of areas and i enjoy that i'm on the board of a fantastic organization called peace by peace which connects women cross culturally to bridge divides and assist women in reaching their full potential as leaders and change agents which of course they are but how do we connect how do we therefore support and and encourage each other and i think that's important i also am supportive of an organization that that helps women that want to step forward in the political arena kind of like the emily's List you know that that provides some funding provides training for women that have that proclivity but don't have the maybe the skill set and we you know we want to keep engaging women as, as, so that they can bring their their feminine wisdom into the political into the international arena.
2: Well, and I know as you speak about feminine wisdom, I, I, I know you're not speaking um, specifically about gender, though there is tends to be more women who, as you say, have a natural um, tendency towards some of these these skills and ways of being on the planet. But I'm wondering what your perspective is on how men or how women who don't have these skills in a natural way, how you learn this I mean, if, if this is somewhat innate in women, so how, how do you teach this?
3: Oh, that's a great question. And firstly, I, yes, you were absolutely right. I want to clarify. I would say some men, like I would say our president, President Obama, uh, displays feminine qualities that I so admire. He's a bridger kind of person. He likes to listen to both sides. Mm-hmm. He, he's, a, he's a uniter. Uh, and that, to me, is a feminine quality. So some women, uh, and quite frankly, in the past, who have wanted to rise the corporate hierarchy have perhaps taken on more masculine character. Characteristics, which there 's again it 's it's a balance it's, neither is better or worse it 's the combination between the masculine, which is more the action and the feminine, which is more the nurturing and the listening and the partnership, and both are needed, and the feminine has been undervalued mm. so to, how you know, your question of how do we encourage this? And I think that's why it's so important that women that step forward in the leadership at whatever level don't let go of those important feminine characteristics. We need to embody it. We need to speak it so that men learn this. When men see that the old model of uh, control over and domineering doesn't work, it can backfire. Um, And I think we're seeing this in different ways in some of the old institutions that have been um, unsustainable are falling apart now in our society and and new models are emerging that have some of those feminine characteristics. And hopefully through embodying it by men seeing the different ways are possible, by working with more women and encouraging more women to serve on boards, not just serve on boards as tokens, because that's what sometimes happens. It's encouraging women's voices to be heard. And that is that's very very important. Um, so, I mean, of course, I'd love to see more training programs for men. Uh, would they take them? I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think too, the most powerful is how we how we live it, and if we can model those in our personal relationships, if we can model that in whatever way we serve, at board level, in political life, in business life, that hopefully men will see there are other ways of doing things and be more open to what is most effective.
2: You know, it makes me wonder about um, compassion because it seems to me that you wouldn't be able to do this well. You wouldn't be able to be collaborative or encourage cooperation or partnership um, or nurturance if you didn't feel compassion. And you and I both know that you can't feel compassion for others unless you feel compassion for yourself.
3: That's right.
2: And so, you know, it makes me wonder about, you know, how, how far back into ourself do we have to go in order to do this work well? So going to a training for a week will give me head knowledge. It may help me understand a little bit more how I can do this. I'm wondering how much this is connected to how well I know myself. Yes, that's certainly
3: true. I also think it needs to start at an early age. And one of my personal desires, especially while I'm here in Washington, D.C., is to work with a team, and I've been talking with others about this, to encourage a required K-12 through course in every school in the United States that includes something I call life skills, because i feel our education is so focused on getting a job <laughs> getting a job oh. that we are we do not teach those basic So what would be included in a a required life skills, as I see it, would be emotional intelligence and empathy and communication skills and conflict resolution skills and perhaps in high school financial management skills so that our young people can graduate with a basic sense of how to get along and how to take care of themselves. Clearly in our society this is missing, and if they don't get it in the family, and sadly many people don't, if they don't go to church... Uh, or spiritual organization, where are they going to get it if they don't get it in Mm. school? Mm. And it's hit and miss. I've gone to many schools. I do trainings in conflict resolution in schools with teachers, with students, uh, with parents. But it's very hit and miss and often depends upon the budget, so therefore you get. It's more in the wealthier schools, and it's often in the more disadvantaged schools that need it most. And so I would love to see the whole focus of education include a life skills course. I think it would be invaluable and an important way for young people to learn these the, the the compassion, the empathy, <clears throat> learn how to really communicate in a healthier way
2: to, you know, be able to grow up into healthier adults. Mm. Well, I would love to see you do that, and I know a lot of people would, Kim. It's, um, I think it's a concern that many of us have for the generations coming up behind us um though certainly our generation could have used that too um but some of the generations coming up behind us who are um so distracted i think i think truly distracted by a lot of the media that they attend to um the video games the texting the you know tweeting etc and it it makes me wonder, how, do, how can we use this to influence what you're talking about, rather than fight it, rather than say, don't do it, you know, clearly they're going to do it, so how can we use it to, to get to what you're talking about?
3: Well, one of the areas, as you mentioned at the beginning, I did, I was co-founder of something called Our Media Voice Campaign for Accountability. Um, I'm not as directly involved with that now, but the the core essence is still very much there, is Our Media Often now, unfortunately, it's getting worse. Uh, You know, gee, we have a conflict. How do we resolve it? We shoot somebody. Well, that's teaching, of course, the absolute wrong lesson. And I think violence has been increasing. And I know personally, as a parent, I have a 17-year-old boy who spends more time than I probably want to know on Facebook and texting and everything else. So I think how do we create the kinds of healthy uh, video games that – don't have to be killing somebody, uh, but how do we make them dramatic and in a way that's um, compelling for young people to want to watch? Uh, how do we instill with our young people that they maintain some of these important values? Um, and it's, it's, it's a deep concern when I look at how multitasking um, you know, people are, especially young people. Uh, if I'm attending a conference, I'd have to say three-quarters of people seem to be looking down, meaning they're looking at their BlackBerry. And I feel like mm-hmm. saying, well, are you listening to what the speaker is saying? Why are you yeah. here if you're not paying yeah. attention? And I, we're teaching our young people to not be present, to, you know, be more concerned about what's happening, you know, with the current email or tweet. And I think, you know, it is a concern. There are many pluses, of course, of the new technology, but I think we have to develop healthier video games, healthier ways to communicate. And, again, that would be part of a life skills
2: course in school is when to use it and when not to use it. You know, that's a really good point, that we're teaching people not to be present. We're teaching everybody not to be present these days. Um, and and it's, I, when I, as, I, as you said that, the thought I had was, you know, not only are we teaching people not to be present, we're teaching them not to be present to themselves. Because the tweeting and the email, etc., is about whatever is going on out there is more important than me right here. And so I, I think about how that then influences one's sense of self-worth and self-esteem, and um, and presence to oneself. You know, does that make sense? Well, yes, it absolutely makes sense, but I also think there's a
3: level of anxiety. I know that if I walk into my son's room and I stand for 30 seconds quietly, he'll go, well, what do you want? (laughs) And they're so used to moving at such a high speed. Mm -hmm. They're so used to three things happening at once that the idea of sitting still or having a mode of silence, heavens forbid, trying to meditate for five minutes, (laughs) Um, it's it's a foreign concept. And this is not good for being... Um, centered. I know if I have a high level, if I've got too much going on, I can feel a level of anxiety that keeps me away from being calm and centered. And I'm afraid our young people are so used to being on such a Mm -hmm. high-paced momentum that they don't know what that sense is
2: to just slow down and maybe have nothing to do for a minute. Well, and this really Takes me to a lot of questions that I have for you, Kim, but we have to take a break. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about the idea of presence and peace. We'll be right back.
0: What is Whole Person Healing via body, via mind, and via spirit? It's a dedication to the widest selection of healing practices, worldwide, whenever possible. Hosted by Professor Rustam Roy, a noted materials scientist and the founder of Friends of Health, who will be here each weekend with the most in-depth information about Whole Person Healing from the world's leading practitioners, spokespersons, and major supporters for this viewpoint. Tune in every Saturday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
4: We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
1: We appreciate you joining our Leading Conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and we're speaking with Kim Weichel today. Kim So we spoke in our last segment um, a little bit about presence and what that takes, and I want to weave that together with the idea of peace. You know, presence is about being centered and calm, as you said, and being able to focus and pay attention. And it seems to me that to be peaceful, that would be required. And we live in a world that is just, so fast-paced and focused on doing, and if you're not multitasking, you're probably not productive, et cetera, et cetera. And so let's talk about the importance of presence and peace.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, that presence is a very important part of peace. And uh, it, it also, I want to say, a lot of times people think of peace as Uh, sitting on a mountaintop, you know, meditating. (laughs) And and peace, if we're going to live in this real world, Mm. has to be a much bigger concept than that. And it's interesting. That's why I named my institute, Institute for Peace, building mm. because it's about building it's a process to build it it means that it doesn't mean we're in peace all the time uh, peace for me does mean more than just always being calm I, I can retain my centeredness even when I disagree with someone and we will disagree with people um, right. if, and so it's 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 a much bigger understanding but it's um, it's about how we be real and authentic how do we be mm. vulnerable how do we be present with ourselves and what 's true for ourselves, uh, and it, for me it, it, it took, it's taken many years to overcome training as a young girl, where I was taught to be polite and while that's of course important, it, polite meant don't just you know, interrupt, don 't disagree, uh, and so it's really how do I speak my truth? speak up when there's injustice and that's been a lot of what my life is about is 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 working for change uh, developing pro, you know sustainable processes building the peace in a country where there's conflict but it is there are ways to do that that's healthy you know i've so far to be honest with you grown beyond the sort of protest because that's a fighting against and a peace for me is standing for what is it i'm standing for that's important to me and there are always many ways of doing it Shout of people, putting people down is not a way that can be listened to. So how do I express myself in ways that can be heard by a different person? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are components to me of peace that I think are important. And in this real world, I do multitask and I try to reduce reduce that so I can <laughs> be present. Um, and it, because life calls so much on us that we have to be able to handle diverse things. But having an inner practice, having an ability to be centered um, is really important, keeps me with a foundation that allows me to deal with what comes up
2: every day. You know, what you said, standing for rather than fighting against, makes so much sense to me. And it really, it, it even speaks more to that concept we started talking about, which was callings. You know, if you're really connected to something, it's probably easier to stand for something. And I'm wondering how much you see this going on in Washington, D.C. and around the world um, around political issues.
3: Hmm. Uh, Well,
2: Washington is,
3: I'll say again, it's such an exciting place to be. One of the reasons is because of the commitment uh, of people. I I have to say, outside of Washington, uh, my image of working in government was Shall we say less than ideal? <laughs> and now that I'm here, I so admire people working in the government, at least the people I've met, and of course, I realize. I don't want to make a huge generalization. There's always differences, like there is in business. But the people I've met working in government are so committed, work such long hours, work very, very hard to uh, on their issues, what, what their focus is. I think that uh, we really want to admire some of the work it had. Now, granted, uh, some of the processes are very frustrating um, and need to be changed. And what's exciting now, what's going on in Washington, and one of the many reasons I'm happy to be here um, and thanks to President Obama, there's been a lot of rethinking. For example, the whole foreign assistance program. Um, how do, what you know, what is the purpose of foreign aid, and how do we best serve developing nations? Um, how do we encourage peace building to become part, an essential part, of our foreign assistance program? This is something I'm actively engaged with right now. There are many reviews going on um, of the whole defense program and so forth and while there are decisions being made that i disagree with here nonetheless um, i find that i can work with people because maybe shall i say it's less ideological and it's more practical it's really people are hands-on are flying to overseas, uh, working on projects. And so you're working with people with tremendous knowledge and tremendous experience. So it calls on one to be extremely well-read and knowledgeable uh, because we don't sit back and just complain about problems. People are working on solutions. And that's, those are the kind of people I want to work with that are working on solutions. And so I, I have to say I'm energized Again, not everything do I agree with that either our president has done or that's going on in Washington. There are a lot of stumbling blocks and problems. We've read about them, you know, in the newspaper. But the good news on the ground is there's a lot of work on programs that work and replicating programs that work and reviewing the process of foreign aid and engaging the peace-building community of which I'm part to ensure that peace-building
2: becomes a part of this whole initiative. You know, people think, I, I think that, that, that many people see peace building as something that happens outside of themselves. It's something that, that actually, as you say, the government does, or the Secretary of State, um, Hillary Rodham Clinton, does around the world. Um, but in fact, it begins with us. It begins. It
3: always begins with us. Yes, and that's why I like the word peace building As peace is so politicized and uh, the word peace is so politicized and has different meanings to people um, but peace building is all the processes in, in, the, in the foreign assistance arena is how do we develop the early warning system so that we can sense a conflict before it erupts into violence conflict is a given, conflict is part of life, we're never going to avoid conflict, that shouldn't be the goal the goal is to avoid violence, because Violence is what uh, deters our well-being. Um, so conflict often is a wonderful sign that says, "Hey, folks, we have a problem here. This needs to be paid attention to." And if you can see it in that way, I like to use the word conflict transformation because we transform it. We deep it, we can deepen the relationship rather than just resolve it, which sometimes just is compromise and doesn't always heal it. And so it starts with ourselves. It starts with our personal relationships. The principles are very much the same. How do we talk with our, with our mate, with a close friend, before the relationship erupts into a big problem? How do we sense things? How do we communicate it so that we have a healthy dialogue and be able to hopefully heal it before it erupts into something bigger?
2: So I like what you said, conflict transformation. Talk more about that. How can we turn our conflict What we attempt to resolve, conflict resolution is a conflict transformation. Give us a couple of tips.
3: One is looking at the commonalities. Uh, one of the organizations I love here in Washington is Search for Common Ground, and they're always looking for what are the commonalities rather than the differences. And we always are going to have some commonalities, things that we agree on, and we start with those even if they're very basic. And it's amazing when we really listen to what the other side wants. Sometimes we, we have misunderstandings, we have judgments, we have stereotypes, we have all kinds of things that can get in the way. And if we sit down and just talk from our heart, not trying to score points, if we have the intention, and that word intention is very important to me, if the intention is to heal. If you go into a difficult conversation with somebody, is the, po- is the purpose to score points to get back or is the purpose to heal and say, I really care about this relationship, I really do, I really feel badly this is happening, tell me from your side, you know, what I've done and I'd like to share what I feel and let's see how we can heal. If you go into it with that intention, and I'd say that also at an international level, if you have that intention, I think things are more likely to transform, and sometimes there's a, a deepening, often there's a deepening of the relationship, and you leave not only healing the specific issue at hand, but deepening
2: the relationship for the future. Hmm. And so this goes back to something I heard you say earlier as you were talking about um, conflict and emotional intelligence and empathy and communication. And you know, you know, you talked about how people don't have to respond in a certain way and so teaching that this goes back to what we were talking about around um, knowing oneself right being able to see beyond yourself and to know that you can have a reaction that doesn't mean you have to respond in that way it doesn't mean you have to fight against right
3: well exactly Uh, we always have to remember that our reactions are our own choosing it is a choice. So often you hear people, Well, you made me do this. No, nobody makes one do anything. We do right. things out of choice. Uh, and we have to always keep choosing and it requires again being centered. It's the 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 way that most conflicts escalate is the the, the loud voices and then the, the it goes back and forth. But if somebody just stopped and breathed and said I, you know, I feel a lot of tension right now. Could we just take a, a time out and come back to a, this in a half an hour or something? You, you de escalate, mm. you, you take a pause, you take a, a walk around the block, and, and you realize that maybe it's. Um, uh, maybe we're being embarrassed or shamed, and we just have to get off of those things and be able to talk about what is it that's really important to us. Always go back to the cross, because often in a conflict, what we're arguing about isn't really what the the issue is. It's something much deeper. So I think we have to do our own work. What's really bothering me here? And what I teach in my trainings is to do our own homework before you ever have a conversation at a personal level or a negotiation at the international level. To to write out what am I feeling, what am I thinking, what am I willing to do and not do? In other words, what is my line that, w- that would cross? And so we have to know what's really at stake for us, what's this conflict about, and then, you know, be able to be big enough to listen and to be able to say, you know, I was wrong when I said that, and I apologize. To be big enough to say that, it's amazing how that can, just those words can sometimes transform
2: a conflict. Mm. And so what is your... Um opinion about having a mediator versus doing it yourself? It
3: depends how entrenched the conflict is. Uh, sometimes a mediator can be invaluable. Um, if it's a one-on-one and if it's a small issue, uh, I would definitely recommend just having a conversation because it's an important practice. If it's a very big, if it's a business deal, if it's a bigger conflict that's been going on for a long time and you don't think that you're going to have success, Or you can try it, and one of the things we teach is ground rules. We start with ground rules. Okay, we're going to agree not to interrupt. We're going to agree to each have, you know, X number of minutes. And you set parameters. You both agree, so you're starting by agreeing on ground rules. Uh, And then, you know, using I statements. And then you can, you know, stop yourself if you're breaking a ground rule. So you can have certain steps to help you first. And if that's not working, then to bring in a mediator that can provide that balance. Hmm. A word I just want to, I want to bring in here um, and that I just love, and it's the word Ubuntu. It's a South African word, and it means I am me because you are you. And as Nelson Mandela and Bishop Tutu talk about, we are inextricably linked to each other. And if we can see that, that sometimes my conflict is simply a mirroring mirroring of something, that I am connected with you, so therefore if we're in this deep relationship, Let's just figure out the details and move forward
2: together. Hmm. Ubuntu, huh? Ubuntu. Ubuntu.
3: Yeah, it's a great word, and it doesn't. There's no synonym in the English language, and I actually changed my institute's name to Ubuntu, but I realized nobody here knew how to pronounce it or what it was. So, but it's <laughs> it's a core principle of Ubuntu, yeah. which is we are really deeply
2: connected with each other. That's a very powerful belief, and one that i think if we could just get a few more people to understand our world would be very different you know yes yes yeah. and i think as we <clears throat> move forward <clears throat>
3: excuse me that we look and we speak with people rather than defining what's different Let's look at what we have as as similar. Because any two cultures, any two people, um, we always will have many more similarities than we have differences. If we start with those similarities, we'll get a lot further.
2: Well, Kim, this has been a delightful conversation, and we're nearing the end of our time together today. It goes so fast whenever we talk together. I just... <laughs> it it's just amazing. <laughs> um, and, you know, I i am reminded of something that I know is very dear to your heart, and um, the phrase that Gandhi is famous for having quoted and that is be the change you want to see and you are an example of this extraordinarily and we so appreciate the work you're doing in the name of all of us you know and for the sake of this world well thank you Cheryl
3: and and I would say that right back to you as well you have a gift and you are sharing it and you are enabling me to share mine so thank you
2: well, it's delightful to have you here, Kim. If people want to know more about you and the organization, what, where can they go? To my website, which is Kim Weichel, K-I-M-W-E-I-C-H-E-L.O-R-G. Great. That's fantastic. So, Kim, good luck with all of this work you're doing, and I'm sure we will have a conversation again in the future back on Leading Conversations so we can keep track of all the great stuff you're doing in the world. So remember everyone to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito.